Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. We have Emily L. Quint Freeman here today to speak about our book, Failure to Appear. And Emily, thank you very much for joining us in this virtual way. As I was saying, it's just a, 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 a really wonderful, straightforward book um, and tells a great story, but you also have a lot of really great ideas in it. And I actually want to start uh, with one thing that was very interesting. You, of course, uh, as the story tells, um, you, you became a fugitive from, uh, not from justice because there was no justice. You're a fugitive from injustice is what we can call you. So uh, you took part in a, a draft board uh, burning, uh, records burning, and uh, it looked like the trial was badly timed, obviously badly timed, and it was in Chicago, you know, not that long after the 1968, uh, you know, uh, mess that took place. So bad timing for you. But so you became a fugitive from injustice, and you... Eventually, after you settled down a little bit, you went to work uh, with another identity. And you, you got a very, you know, you started with very low-level jobs, as lots of people do in this gig economy, as we, we talk about today, you know, all these extra side. It's the way you got started. And then you got into a company that worked, a, a brokerage, right, and then, that worked way up. And then you went to work for one of the clients, Industrial Indemnity, and you made your way up to senior underwriter. Now, how did you do that? You didn't have you didn't have an education in that, right? You have a, you had a degree from Berkeley, but it wasn't in in insurance or business or anything, right? Uh, no, I had a liberal arts background, right. uh, but I I obviously in, in getting the jobs, the entry jobs that I you know I started with, and using an alias had nothing of my real background, mm. uh, my college degree, none of that. But I started in 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 receptionist, a trainee. Uh, typist, these kinds of jobs. And I managed to get a job in a computer company at the very dawn of of sort of the uh, San Francisco boom in tech. And uh, they were willing to take a receptionist and make them into a programmer. And from from there, learning programming, I was able to work with a client in the insurance industry. And that client uh, ultimately hired me again in a trainee position, and work my way up. I, I mentioned in the book using a chapter title called A Talent for Risk, mm-hmm. that I seemed to fit the insurance underwriter role uniquely. <laughs> uh, the ability to analyze risk, the ability to look at alternatives, to come up with the right decision. So I had the kind of mind, uh, given that I was on the run and, learned, and was trying to not get captured, I had to evaluate risk every day. Yeah. And it seemed like that talent was was extremely useful and analytical talent and the computer skills talent that blossomed into a career while I was still a fugitive. Well, it'll be uh, impressive if a large number of fugitives hear this and decide that they should go into the insurance industry because <laughs> that is not the usual path. Um, and and uh, But... I, I just thought, I mean, obviously, uh, a lot of people in the gig economy uh, may not have your background and your skills and stuff like that. But the one thing I found very interesting was that you, you, you said you found it was an island. I think it was an island of safety or something. Work was an area that you could work in and, and feel more comfortable, even though you were uh, using an alias and so on. And, uh, but you also worked hard. And I've always thought, you know, that if you, and, and this is what happened to you when you moved to your next job in Bakersfield, if you work hard and you're a team player um, and uh, you can get along with other people, et cetera, you, you often, almost joining any company, can rise up in management over time. And a lot of people have a, a, a dislike of institutions uh, and corporations, et cetera, et cetera. And certainly your profile is not one that, you know, would be considered, uh, you know, institutionally friendly uh, from your, your, your background and everything. So um, I thought it would be very interesting to tell uh, the people that are listening how you were able to, to manage that and apply yourself in this way and that they can too because I think that this is, uh, there's a lot of people out there that think I could never get along in these institutions. I could never get along with people who are so much different than I am. And we'll talk about those differences a little bit later. But, but people really can. There's lots of different people in these big institutions. So... Maybe say a little bit about that for people. Not that everybody has to go out and join a, a corporation and work, but that it's not as a 
terrible a path as a lot of people think. So maybe if you tell you a little bit about that, that'd be great. No, it, it was a combination of things. Um, one is that I, I found these career fields to be incredibly challenging mm -hmm. and interesting. Um, if, you, if you don't find what you're doing interesting and challenging, you're not gonna apply yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but also because I had uh, a terrible personal life in terms of having to be on the run, I, you know, I had a, a situation that was quite difficult. Instead of turning that into just sort of blank despair, mm -hmm. I turned it into energy, into applying myself uh, to try to learn something that I, I had to learn from ground up, mm -hmm. computer programming, insurance, all of that. But I was willing to apply myself beyond what their expectations were, whether it was studying for, for national exams is, that I did in, when I was working for the insurance company. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was that sort of application and dedication, if you will. I mean, these are sort of old-fashioned concepts, mm -hmm. but but they they showed, mm -hmm. and 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 people who were above me took notice of that, that I was conscientious and I was applying myself and had good results, that uh, that they were willing to promote me despite the skimpiness of my resume. That also <laughs> puts people off a lot. Sure. They I don't have this big resume, but you can create your resume as you go along. Yeah. And that's literally what I did in this industry was created as I went along rather than relying on what my quote unquote college education was. Uh, I, I started in a place where I could find uh, advancement. That's another key thing is that I re recognized that I was working for uh, bosses in these large corporations that wanted me to advance, mm -hmm. that were willing to take a chance on a receptionist going to an underwriter, or excuse me, a programmer, or willing to take an underwriter trainee and 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 move them along. Mm -hmm. you, you have to be working for that sort type of management that not only recognizes the effort you're putting in, but wants someone uh, to advance rather than sort of just looking at people's resumes and judging them by that. I think I've learned that in my career. And I kind of astounded them at one point. I talk about it in the book where I actually got the highest national score on four insurance national exams. Yeah. And I got sent off on this big trip, but it got the attention of senior management that maybe I was someone that they could advance uh, uh, even further. But that's been my experience. That was a that was a great story about having to win that award and you having to receive the award in front of everybody. You say, is anybody going to recognize my picture? You know, <laughs> when, when, well, the last place they're going to be looking for a fugitive is winning an award at an insurance conference. So I think it was pretty good cover. Um, the, the other uh, funny story that you told, not funny because it's painful for San Francisco, but you had, when they were thinking about moving you into underwriting, they gave you a test. Mm -hmm. and, and the test was, would you insure this company? Um, okay, so we, we uh, lost the screen here. Okay, I think the screen is still working for you. So um, go ahead, Emily. Tell us about what they tested you with. I, I thought that was just great. Well, uh, I was involved in what's called liability underwriting, mm -hmm. which is uh, really underwriting intangibles, underwriting management, management. Uh, uh, as well as sort of what's on a piece of paper. There are a lot of intangibles to this type of underwriting commercial liability. And they gave me a file with all of the identifying information removed that looked like a some sort of religious institution. Mm -hmm. And they asked me to review it in depth and said, uh, would, I, would I write their insurance for them in, in, in this line of business liability? In other words, if someone sued them. And I flatly turned it down, mm -hmm. and I, I recognized what was in front of me was a cult, mm -hmm. not a religious institution. And what they showed me was people's temple. Yeah, they showed me Jim Jones, uh, who ultimately, as you know, the tragic uh, end of that story in Guyana, yeah. with all those people. Uh, and this was two so, years after that had happened. Yes. So, yes, so they were just no, testing I you had, with an old file. Yeah, but I yeah. had no. I had. I had, you had no, no idea what it was. Yeah, yeah. No idea what it was, but it knew enough to to sort of say absolutely not. But it turns out they were actually going for this 
People's Temple Insurance. Right. They didn't actually end up being the insurer, but but they were testing me to see what my reaction would be mm-hmm. to a, a risk like that. And, and based got, on you, how I answered that, I, and you got an A plus plus answer, you know, after the fact, and and that helped you move forward. I thought that was very interesting how it yeah. helped you move forward faster. And I told him it was not on my authority that I'd write that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so. Um, Let's go to to the book now for a second. And uh, I have a, a simple question about your, your cover. Failure to appear. All of the R's are turned around. So is, is you have a reason for that in the, in the cover art? Did someone talk you into that or you just? Some a, a graphic artist did that um, and just sort of said, this is kind of cool. And yeah. am I okay with it? And okay. I said, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just curious because some, that that turned around R is a is a letter in Russian, and I thought I, I was wondering if there was a, a Russian connection because you know we are all worried about the Russian interference in everything around here. No, so uh, so now let's start when you're in college, and you are about to. Well, you're you're starting to make decisions for yourself. You came from a family that. Um, you don't identify with that much, obviously. So we're going to talk a lot about a lot of identity issues. Um, and in this case, you're at college and your parents are paying for you to go to college. And then they tell you that they're not going to pay anymore because you're not doing what they want, right? So you want to tell that part of the story? Because it's, it's very important for what happens later. Well, uh, the first difficulty I had with my family was my activism, Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was going to Berkeley in the '60s, and not just but Berkeley was a was a hotbed of, of activist uh, people. Mm-hmm. But uh, I early on, uh, even in high school, identified with the struggle for civil rights. Mm-hmm. And my father and I had very difficult conversations. Uh, and when I got to college and I was continuing that activism, getting involved in the, in the struggle against the war in Vietnam, that was one huge point of difference. But the, what ultimately broke our relationship was the fact that I fell in love with a woman mm-hmm. um, while I was a student there in my sophomore year. And she wanted me to spend the summer with her and her family. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to spend the summer with her. And I had to decide whether I would stop being a chameleon and hiding mm-hmm. and and lying to them, myself, etc. And I told my father I wasn't coming home for the summer. I was going to be with her. And he exploded and basically said, you know, this will last a week once yeah. I pulled the financial rug out from under you. Uh, this <laughs> one, we'll be back to guys pretty quick. But I didn't. I didn't. I went with her for the summer. Mm-hmm. And they stopped paying for my education, leaving me to figure all of this out from being a comfortable kid, sheltered by my family, ultimately going back to Berkeley, uh, doing odd jobs, doing whatever I can to, uh, to stay afloat and get my college degree. Now, I, I didn't cave in a week. Mm-hmm. And I think my father uh, uh, became adamant that caving was around the corner and just wouldn't accept it. Yeah. But that, that conversation with my father was pivotal in putting me in a completely different spot in life. It's kind of being spirited off like Robinson Crusoe. Yeah. You know, I was gone from a sheltered kid to somebody totally on their own. And uh, this was uh, the start of a different, a totally different life that, that, as the book describes, ended in a very different place. So yeah. I felt free after that. Yeah. Uh, there was total poverty but there was a freedom in that mm-hmm. in that I could be myself. Mm-hmm. I could be the activist person I was. And I could come to grips with being gay. Mm-hmm. Um, that proved a little bit difficult because the movement in the 60s didn't allow you to be both. Right. So I, I, I found out yeah. pretty quickly that if I wanted to be a movement activist, I had to go back to hiding that I was a lesbian. Yeah. But the point was, there was a freedom in this 
and standing up for my conscience that um, that changed the course of my life. Yeah, and, and it, it seems, uh, I'm, I'm sure that it's not something you thank your parents for, but it certainly prepared you for then your, your, your life underground because you had, to, you had to just scrape by with whatever you could. And uh, you certainly showed that. I'm sure that you had the capacity to do it all, even if you hadn't had that practice. So, but but it, it was it was a very interesting how those two things lined up. So after college, you 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 head off to Chicago and you joined a group that's uh, well. You started being an activist against the Vietnam War, right? Yeah, uh, there was a, there was a sort of a caravan of of students going to Chicago to organize against the war in Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, and I joined that. Got on a VW van and went off to Chicago. The irony, I, I was born in Chicago, but I only lived there four months as a, as a child. Yeah. And I had no one in Chicago that I knew, but I, I wanted to spend full time as an, as an activist. Uh, that summer project ended, but it began, again, another activist channel opened up and that I joined the American Friends Service Committee, which is the Quakers' mm-hmm. social arm, action arm, and uh, first as a volunteer and then as a staff person doing what's called draft counseling, which is the um, letting guys know what their rights were, uh, what the rules were, uh, how to file as a conscientious objector, all of those kinds of things. And I lived in kind of a little apartment in the north side and, of Chicago and, and, and met some people involved in a Puerto Rican welfare rights organization. So I became involved in that as well. So it's the the summer of organizing ended up in, in, in two main activities in 1968, early part of 69. Mm-hmm. That was the draft counseling and, uh, and the um, work with the welfare rights thing when I wasn't protesting and picketing and doing stuff like that. Yeah. The, uh, maybe a little background for people who aren't familiar with that period of time. Um, the, there was a lot of young people against the war the middle class, uh, uh, middle-aged people weren't ready to disbelieve the government. You know, the, the, the silent majority that Richard, that, you know, elected Richard Nixon and so on and so forth. Um, and so there were a lot of families that were divided between their children and their parents on this issue in a way that's not so common now about, about any big issues. There were a lot of issues like that. Um, and maybe say a little bit about the war before it came to an end, before when it was right in the middle, when it was ramping up under uh, Johnson, uh, of, of why it, it engaged everybody's uh, energies so much, because it, it, it was a lot bigger protesting than anything that's been seen since then. At the time, there was several kinds of protests, civil rights uh, and uh, the uh, anti-war movement, and you, you were involved in both of those. So say a little bit about that time, I think, because people... Especially your nonviolent approach, which was which was an interesting part that you had to face later and later, you know, in the middle of your other things. Yeah. Well, you've got multiple questions about. Yes, I know. <laughs> Just set up to tell the story. There, there was a massive generational split. Mm-hmm. Um, parents, your parents in the fifties were wanting to live the comfortable white American life. That that was their goal. Um, I, not everyone, but I would say there was this sort of uh, very materialistic, very happy with the quote-unquote American dream, even if it was only for white folks. Uh, that was what uh, my generation broke with, uh, not only involved with the politics, but also sort of spiritually as well. I mean, you know, the hippies, the folk movement, you know, all kinds of things where people just emotionally, spiritually, their politics split from their parents. Mm -hmm. They wanted completely different things in life. And this generation looked around and saw two hateful things. One was segregation and structural racism in this country and Jim Crow laws and all of that. Mm-hmm. and the rise of the civil rights movement in the late 50s and identified with that. But also the fact that there was this um, acceptance by their parents that if anything was called communist, mm-hmm. it was bad. It was automatically bad. That was our enemy. Mm-hmm. That was our enemy in Korea, supposedly. That was our enemy in Vietnam. We were told our parents 
bought into a lie here mm-hmm. that what was going on in Southeast Asia was communism, the red label. Mm-hmm. And we were willing to first help a corrupt, brutal government who wasn't a, certainly democratically elected in, in Vietnam, uh, willing to send in helpers, special forces, and then ultimately ground troops over this long escalation period. And the truth was not coming out. The truth was coming out on college campuses. Hmm. People were telling the real story of Vietnam, not the story the government told you. The real the story the government told you was the red label. What you failed to understand was the nationalist interest of the Vietnamese people. And the length of time that this war built up with a compulsory draft, sending a lot of poor and minority men over there to fight this war, when in fact, at home, they face social injustice. Um, That was a point Muhammad Ali, I thought, made Mm -hmm. quite clear. So the two things were going on at the same time. And I think Martin Luther King recognized that social justice would never come to America. It would be hindered by the men, the money, and the effort being spent to the kill of Vietnamese. The two had to be addressed together. And I think the anti-war movement certainly understood that point. So I think the generation now is sort of coming around to this thing, wanting to live differently, the Black Lives Matter movement, et cetera. Yes, there are more adults that see this than before, but I think these generational splits, particularly this one in the 60s that I experienced, Mm -hmm. led to a completely different way of thinking, believing, uh, had a different vision for this country that we still desperately are trying to achieve. So. That's my view of the 50s and the 60s. Yeah. And my parents were definitely immersed in the materialistic part of the 50s. Yeah, uh, one, one little detail from what you mentioned uh, that I think might be helpful uh, for today uh, is about yeah. Muhammad Ali. Um, Muhammad Ali was Cassius Clay. He was uh, famous for being uh, quite a personality in addition to a really good boxer um, and was this big sports character. And then he converted to Islam, took a new name, and was against the war. And people didn't understand how someone who, who boxed and nearly killed people could be a pacifist and so on and so forth. So it was a very interesting character. And I think there are some big sports characters today, like Colin Kaepernick and so on, who are also protesting. And people are saying, you guys aren't allowed to protest. Whereas, whereas for us, you know, we, we had the uh, black athletes at the Olympics uh, at, at, that, that raised the power sign. That was a common way for people who are sports stars, to express their dis- distress at, at the fact that this racism, this structural racism, just keeps continuing. Um, and then one other thing about the parents. I mean, the parents, to, to say something in favor of our parents who just wanted this nice, comfortable life, they had gone through the Depression, and then they had gone through World War II. The government did well by them in World War II. Uh, it, not so well at the Korean War, but at least something. And then so it took a while for them to learn that this, you know, th- there's a reason for them to be... Yes. like that but and, and we don't even talk on the, all the time that they went through the great depression yeah so, and, yeah and so the, what they wanted was security right you know most all you know they wanted financial security uh and, and which was what the 50s were about i think muhammad ali is the one that set the standard high very high standard for sports figures um he was He's a so beloved sp- character now. Everyone, I mean, he passed away, but he was a beloved character for the last 15, 20 years, but he was a really big problem for, I mean, uh, uh, that, that cost him a lot. And, well, it cost him yeah. his title and everything right. he risked. Um, but he made this point so clearly, yeah. you know, when he was at the top of his career, there was no, you know, financial reason whatsoever to do this, but he stood up and said, why should I be willing to go across an ocean to kill brown people in Southeast Asia when people in Louisville, my community, my black community is treated like dogs? Mm-hmm. What, what, what is that about? He, he made that point. Mm-hmm. And the government found that to be incredibly difficult 
for someone of that stature to make that point so clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I totally admired him. I, I wanted to make a point about nonviolence mm-hmm. before I look at that point that you asked me. I think that my activism grew out of my otherness as a child, you know, this chameleon, this secret gay person. And I identified with outsiders, with people who were uh, treated badly. My most vivid thing is the killing of the schoolgirls uh, by the Klan, a church uh, in that church in Monk, was it Birmingham? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that happened when I was in high school. My whole activism arises, I guess, out of a sense of empathy. And so I identified with pacifism, with the nonviolence of Martin Luther King, because it wasn't, it wasn't really ideology or anger. Mm-hmm. It was at the core of why I, I am and was an activist. It was empathy. Mm-hmm. And so the message of nonviolence was a message I understood, I could relate to, uh, I found to be powerful. Uh, and I think that, um, that that message is not changed today as people look at options for themselves in protesting. But I've come to the opinion that there's activism based on anger and ideology, mm-hmm. and there's activism based on empathy. It's a great distinction to make. And uh, I mean, I felt the same way during the Vietnam War protests. You're, you're against the war, but they were very violent uh, at, at times. And, and you know, a lot of times you, you see the people, they're just enjoying burning things. Um, that doesn't really help your cause. It seems like, it seems like. Um, I can understand why people get so frustrated that they do get angry and they do it based on that, but it, uh, the empathy approach is the one that I, I admire as well. So um, you're in Chicago and you're with a group, that, uh, you're giving advice to the draft board, and then you meet people that are associated with, uh, not the maybe not directly, but with the Berrigan, the, uh, the two uh, priests uh, named Berrigan, the brothers, uh, and it's also weird for people to think of Catholic priests uh, being, uh, you know, except for if they have Latin American experience, to have Catholic priests on the forefront of, of anything like this. The Pope didn't like it either. Um, <laughs> but but uh, tell us a little bit about, about that group that you got into and, and uh, a little bit about what you planned. I, by the way, it was well planned. I loved it that you, you guys rented a, a room in the same building. I hadn't heard of anybody be that well planned. <laughs> Well, there, you know, I, I, I'm, I come from a Jewish background, and, and my knowledge of the Catholic Church is, is certainly very small. But uh, I, I came in contact with um, a part of the Catholic Church that, that surprised me, and I guess you would call it worker priests or uh, activists. There is a tradition in the Catholic Church called Catholic workers. Um, and the Berrigans, Dan and Phil Berrigan, were, were really part, in my mind, of that whole movement. Mm-hmm. It was a movement of conscience and, and activism, poverty, uh, and peace, and, and dedication of one's life to these ideals. So I had an opportunity to meet Phil Berrigan at a meeting on the south side of Chicago at a professor's house. And he, he was very well known at the time because a year before, he, about a year before, he had gone with several friends of his, uh, mainly Catholic priests and nuns. They barged into a draft board in Catonsville, Maryland, and they grabbed a couple of hundred files and they put them in the parking lot and burned them with homemade napalm and waited for arrest. Mm-hmm. He was out on bail for that. That was a whole new sort of protest. Something had never been done before. Mm-hmm. People burning their draft card, people picketing, people marching, dying in, all of the stuff that was going on. That was all there, but this was something brand new. Mm-hmm. And it was an act of conscience. And when I went to this meeting and Phil and I had an opportunity to talk, I found that to be the kind of protest that spoke directly to me. 
that was an act of conscience beyond marching in the street mm -hmm. that put a name and a face with a commitment, with a statement. And uh, I wanted to be part of this group that was considering an act in Chicago. Another thing that was so attractive to this in my own mind was tying the war with racism. We didn't go for a white suburb, a draft board in a white suburb. Mm -hmm. We decided to look at the south side of Chicago, which houses a very large black community, a complex of draft boards in one single location, and that our statement of conscience would meld the two together. Mm -hmm. So beyond the Catonsville action, which was about the war, this new aspect about racism spoke to my heart. Uh, I had just, I participated in a protest where they were handing out flyers. And it was a picture of a young Vietnamese child running naked down in the countryside somewhere. Mm -hmm. And her village had been set fire by American aircraft by napalm. Her parents were probably incinerated in that village. Mm -hmm. and she was running and screaming down this path. That's what was in my mind when I raised my hand and I said, yes, I'd be part of this. Yeah, it's a very powerful image. Um, and and uh, it's hard not to feel responsibility for it, um, even though we don't make those decisions uh, just being American. Um, same thing, I think, true today. You don't, uh, it's very difficult to um, deal with the decisions that our government makes because you kind of identify with them, uh, what, what they do, but obviously no government does everything that we want to, to be done. So, um, so you took that uh, step. Um, y as you said, there was a building uh, that housed several draft boards, and um, your group found out that there was empty space in there, rented the space. Uh, that was brilliant. Yeah. Made it very easy to, 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 not easy, but it made it a lot easier to do what you did. So, so I'll let people read the book for all the details because they're great. Um, but uh, well, we wanted to make a big statement. I mean, we were not looking to take out a hundred files by running into a draft board. Right. This is pre-computers, pre everything was on paper, ledgers, cards, files. We were hoping to get thousands and thousands of 1A files of draft eligible men, probably mostly minority and black, and burn them in a parking lot. Mm -hmm. The only way to do that would be to do that by night at night and by having this office and being able to ha take our time if you will mm -hmm. and put a create this huge bonfire we were really hoping to save the lives of these men mm -hmm. and it turned out we probably took about forty thousand or more files mm -hmm. um so and you, you, you it seemed like the whole plan worked out really well. I mean, from, from the point of view of a practical thing, you were able to pull out, what did they say, 40,000 records or something like that, and then and burn them. Um, and then you, you waited there f for the arrest. You were, you were, it's kind of funny because people don't realize how many times that was done, that you protest in a way expecting to be arrested and no, don't leave. That was all part of the, uh, the nonviolent uh, attempt, both in the civil rights community and in the anti-war community at the time. So, you succeeded, you got arrested, <laughs> and, and then it looked bad. Um, I mean, then you went to Cook County Jail. And I want to talk a little bit about your time in, in, in the jail. Um, it, it, it has an intersection of several of your issues, one dealing with your family, the other dealing with prisons and prison reform and why it is that you decided to run after this experience. So um, you want to say a little bit about the experience? And then if you have any ideas about prison reform or what you think about about how we deal with our prisoners, because you talk about the racism issue, and it's something we've had a lot of discussions here at the Commonwealth Club about, about and, and many other people, of course, have done it too, of how mass incarceration in the, in the late 90s and, and 2000s is just another way of, of, of creating the old slavery thing. I mean, it's, just, it's, a, it's not as bad, but it's still terrible, and, and it's really structural racism, as you said. So... Well, um, we had no bail fund 
uh, and a defense committee was formed after we were arrested to try to raise our bail. But we spent a significant number of weeks behind bars mm-hmm. until people were freed and bail. Uh, I saw pretty much up close, I'm sure, what the prison system is like today. Uh, where people were criminalized for minor offenses, drug possession, whatever. People with mental illness criminalized. In other words, it just was putting people behind bars. Mm-hmm. And the desperation there uh, and the violence that was there and the way in which the guards allowed this all as long as they were safe to kind of continue. And being as a a political protester singled me out for some special attention by the guards. Mm -hmm. I could see clearly that poor and minority women were the population of this jail. And that mostly people had emotional difficulties, drug problems, alcohol problems, et cetera, that could have been treated in another way. It never was treated in another way because we're spending all the money on war. Mm-hmm. You know, our budget, our military budget, the war in Vietnam sucked so much money out of the government. Mm-hmm. I could see that nothing was going to change in all of this beside the fact that the prison system seemed to be the way in which society was trying to deal with with inequity and injustice, that the war had to end. It even strengthened my resolve into that because nothing would be spent on social programs. And we still have this incredible problem today of wanting to build up a military when in fact we need this money here for our own people, for for our immigrants. We need it for healthcare. We need, we need our priorities are completely out of step with reality. Mm-hmm. But in this case, the war in Vietnam was sucking out, if you will, the money uh, that could go to rectifying some of this stuff. And I saw all that pretty clearly. And there was no, you know, uh, my naive romantic view of being a political prisoner sort of ended the first week I was in the Cook County jail. And and then I saw the reality of what was happening. But my situation and our group situation changed dramatically from what happened to the Catonsville defendants into what happened to us. So my view that we would spend maybe a year or two in prison, uh, we would be up on state charges, Etc. following along with the experience of what happened to the Barrigans and their friends at Canesville, that never materialized. Mm-hmm. That wasn't what happened in 1970. That wasn't the kind of legal troubles we were in. Yeah. So you could see that they, they were going to try uh, to, to uh, use you as an example and severely punish you, basically. Yeah, but that but was fueled by two huge events that had happened between the action and the trial a year later. Mm-hmm, right. One was the uh, uh, the Democratic National Convention, the huge protests around it out in Chicago, and wanting to criminalize the leaders of that movement by bringing them on on federal charges in Chicago of conspiracy, etc. So that huge trial and that huge setting for that, and secondly, the wave of violence that was sweeping America. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were brought to trial shortly after Kent State. Uh, that may not be something that your uh, viewers know about or may not know about. But basically, I think it was about 10 or 11 days before our trial started in 1970. There was a peaceful protest, anti-war protest, on the Kent State's campus. The National Guard was there and shot and killed a number of the students. Mm-hmm. Um, this resulted in a huge wave of protest all over America, college campuses, town cities, was quite a reaction. But the kind of atmosphere that we were brought to trial in a federal trial in Chicago was quite different than anything like 
what happened to the Catonsville people and the American 1970 mm-hmm. was quite different than the American 1969. Yeah. So um, you... Just a couple days before the end of the trial, you uh, left, became a fugitive. And what I found interesting, and I think you found it interesting too, was that the people who helped you escape didn't take you to Canada, but took you to Detroit and then to the South. Not probably what you were expecting. Um, but you certainly made something out of it. And, and don't go into the, the detail, but you, the, the man who helped you, who saved your life too, then uh, you had a very difficult situation because uh, the, he was turning to, to uh, violence and, and, and uh, criminal activity in order to support it. And so it, the split between, as you say, the split between anger and ideology and empathy as the cause for it caused you to split with the person who you'd worked with most closely. That's another very difficult thing. So um, you, the story is told so well in the thing. So now, now you, now, now you, you split and you go to Atlanta. Is that it? Right in some place in Georgia. Right. Basically, the, the, this priest. He was a priest, and I, um, who helped me escape, who had connections to a group. Um, he had become a violent revolutionary, mm-hmm. and that is that is not me. And the choices were to to go out on my own completely out on my own as a fugitive or stay with them mm-hmm. and or go back to chicago and turn myself in i decided to completely sever my relationship with him and his friends and do something rather impossible and, and that so- was to get on a bus to a city I'd never been to, Atlanta, Georgia, with about $100 and a birth certificate of a dead child and begin a life, essentially on my own, with that to show for it. But that's what I chose to do. And you met Mrs. Robinson. I thought that was funny. I did. I met a Mrs. Robinson, a, a wonderful Black woman who... I was homeless. I got off a bus. I had no place to stay. So I thought I'd go over to the YWCA. (laughs) And I met Mrs. Robinson. And she was, she found me a place to stay. I, throughout this book, throughout my story, when I most needed help, whether I was this name or that name or another name, I found strangers who offered me a hand and kindness that I never expected, starting with this woman mm-hmm. uh, who, who found me a place to stay. And more than that, became my friend. So she didn't have to help me, but she did. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Doc, the Emory professor as well helped. And the, professor, yeah. the professor whose daughter... He, uh, he took me in, gave me a place in one of his student uh, apartments. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't have me pay rent for a while until I got a job. And I understood that the reason for that was his own tragedy. Mm-hmm. What happened to his daughter in domestic violence? Mm-hmm. He decided to reach out and help a stranger, a woman who shows up at a desperate situation herself and, and needed needed to, a place to, to begin. So my story is has these amazing people who, who did this for me. And I'd like to, to uh, remind our audience that if you'd like to uh, ask Emily a question directly, uh, you just uh, put it in the chat box and uh, I'll get it uh, over my phone and we'll ask that. But um, yeah, I thought... You know, for for what you the story you tell, you you run into a lot of reasons to have hope because there's so many people that were good and so. But and I want to talk a little bit about that because you your your family didn't come to the trial uh, at all, and your family kind of cut cut you off, and then you disappeared, and you didn't have any contact with them for over almost 20 years or more than 20 years, right? So we, we, maybe we'll get back to that a little bit later. But you created many different alternative family groups with people who are at least, you know, substitute uh, friendships with older, uh, older men, older women. It was, it was by, uh, 
by personality or, or what, but you did, a, you did an amazing job of, of collecting alternates in your family, alternate family members. And I think a lot of people are in that situation. We, there's so many people living alone now uh, compared to when we were young. Um, and I think it's a very useful thing to, to, to have that skill and, and develop real connections with, you know, two or three. Or, it doesn't even, you don't have to have a dozen or anything like that, just, but two or three people. Um, and anyway, your story is, is, has a lot of good um, advice in, 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 in essence uh, on how to do that. To great souls. Yeah. You know, I, I, I run into people whose spirit, whose light shines, mm-hmm. whether they're old or young or straight or gay or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I let them into my life, even though what I tell them about my life is a complete fiction. Mm-hmm. I'm hiding under an alias. But these people repay that to me. You know, it was in Atlanta that a guy working with me at at an architectural firm outed me, basically. You know, he he basically recognized the gay woman in front of him. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had to come to grips then and say to myself, uh, am I going to live my truth? Am I going to live my sexual truth? Mm Mm-hmm. And I could see he was, and I uh, he was a, a role model for me, and took me to gay gay bar, and and mm-hmm. in other words, he started something that is so important in my life that is a part of my identity of who I am. But it, it's uh, it's true that throughout this story, I was attracted to people who had this light in, within them, mm-hmm. whether they. And I recognized that some of them turned out to be guides and teachers to me, Mm -hmm. showed me a different way of of living. If I couldn't be my birth name, if I couldn't be the person, uh, I didn't have a real, my original birth certificate, if I, even on the run, I could be someone who had depth. I could have a life. Uh, I found that living this lie was a reason I needed to do something because I could never really, despite these relationships, get as close to them as I wanted to be mm-hmm. because that was my fault because I wasn't honest about who I am. In other words, there was always a wall or barrier there because of that. Well, but, the first time that you were honest didn't work out too well. No, but... Uh, <laughs> There was a gentleman I, who's so important in my life, a, a, a much older man than me, that I met in South San Francisco. He, I was touring a house. He was standing by the fence and had a rake in his hand. And, and we started talking, and he told me that he was amongst the soldiers who were in Bataan. Mm-hmm. They were part of that death march to a concentration camp during World War II. And that he managed to survive that survived being on suicide watch at a VA hospital. Mm-hmm. And then he found a new way of living with nature and gardening and growing your own food, and things I knew absolutely nothing about. But I saw the light within this man. And I said, you know, I want to live next to this guy. <laughs> and, I thought that was, that was the most interesting way of choosing a house that I've ever read about yeah. anywhere. Because you didn't like the house and you didn't like the garden, but you liked the no. neighbor. And so you bought the house. Yeah, I thought I that did. was just great. I bought the house just to live next to him. It wasn't the plumbing. Uh, and they had a lot of weeds and uh, a woodpecker, you know, that <laughs> found a home on a telephone pole out and back. But <laughs> I, I just kind of felt like I wanted to live next to this guy. Did you ever tell live. him that, that you bought the house just to live next to him? Yeah. That <laughs> was a Jewish saying, you know, I thought I was a bit in the sugar, which just means. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. <laughs> but, uh, he uh, he he liked me, and and he was he liked the fact that I played classical piano, uh-huh. and he would sit for long hours in his chair out in the back and listen to me play Mozart. And so I I was hopeful that through my music I was able to give him back something. Well, Stan, you tell you tell a, a very. Uh difficult story a double story because your friends steve um 
that that you were friends with and and uh, and for many many years you were friends with he and his group of friends etc in San Francisco and then he was one of the first victims of the AIDS uh, epidemic and Stan at the same time your friend Stan that was your next door neighbor um, also had cancer had cancer of something and so they both died around the same period and. Um, so Stan went back to Kenosha. You said he was from Kenosha, Wisconsin, right? We were talking earlier before we got on because uh, I'm from Kenosha. A lot of good people in Kenosha. And uh, so, and this, this wonderful man, I, I, it, was, it was so interesting to hear you write about this guy. You buy a house because he's next door and he turns out to be one of the most wonderful people. You have a good judge of risk there, <laughs> as you said about, about insurance. Um, but let's let's move from Stan to Steve and his friends, and and you were you were uh, accepted into this group in an unusual way as well. Now it's another alternate family, Steve and all of his gay friends, and then of course the tragedy started to strike. So to, uh, people, I, I think for people who know the AIDS crisis now, it's manageable now. The first four or five, six years, it was a death sentence for anybody who had it basically, and and everyone knew that that person would die within six months or a year or a year and a half. So. Tell a little bit about that. Yeah, I met Steve through work, mm-hmm. um, and he was very into the um, the bar scene in San Francisco, and uh, I became you know, part of his group. I was kind of the little lesbian novelty member <laughs> of a very large female family, um, and I would go to bars with them and uh, and see him on the weekend after work and stuff and, and and he became a very 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 close friend of mine and uh i had relationships with women but i continued to go do the bar scene again this family this gay male family was so important to me because as i said there was during the years that I was on the run, um, there was always a barrier between who I really was and the life I was leading. You know, the person they knew was not, that wasn't my real name, that wasn't my real background, this thing. But I very much felt part of this family, a large group of gay men friends. Uh, I had women partners coming and going, but I kind of felt very into this family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had a similar sense of humor, this wicked sense of humor with these guys. And, yeah. and then when he got AIDS, and they didn't know it was AIDS. Mm-hmm. You know, this was the time when the disease itself didn't have a name yet. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he slowly uh, uh, started to decline and then suddenly died. You know, it, it was pretty steep. Mm-hmm. And they were still grappling with what is this disease? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and the whole situation in San Francisco it abruptly changed. Um, I felt at his death extremely guilty that I never told him my real name. I never told him my real name, real story. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was really hard because I felt he was my family, mm-hmm. you know, my brother. Um, and so when Stan, this wonderful man, Gardner, the tan survivor, got cancer. I decided to put aside my long uh, hesitation of saying anything to anyone and tell him the truth. And I did tell him the truth. And he was the one who said to me, this isn't a life. This, you can't continue just living like this. I've known for the entire time we've been friends that something terrible is going on inside of you. But uh, Steve was part of so many men who died from a disease that first didn't have a name. There was definitely no cure. Um, And because it was happening to gay men that a disproportionate number of people who were getting AIDS were gay men, Mm -hmm. I felt very strongly that the attention from the government to getting their grips around this disease was not what it should be at all because the most uh, affected population was gay men. So a lot of gay women felt 
that their brothers needed help. And so we all kind of, there was a lot of women that were involved with gay men who were friends and, you know, brought dinners and food and donations. And there was incredible, and there is an incredible solidarity in the gay community about the AIDS epidemic. But um, this struck home in terms of me looking at my own life because here is my dearest friend who didn't know who I really am, truly my family. Um, that kind of started this path that ultimately led to me doing something about my situation. Yeah. Um, right now, there are uh, plenty of commentators saying about COVID-19 that it would have gotten more attention uh, or, or that the attention waned uh, when it turned out that, that uh, it was affecting minorities more than, than others. Do you think that there's any justification to that? I mean, you just said this about... Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. There is a terrible connection between disease and injustice and racism mm -hmm. because the victims, so many victims are poor and minority and die in disproportionate numbers. I understand this very well, mm -hmm. that this response, aside from all the other problems with our federal government that are obvious to anyone who is sane at this time, yeah. uh, this disproportionate deaths and the affecting of poor and minority communities is something that I understood as well with AIDS, but also understood with the war in Vietnam mm -hmm. that a disproportionate number of, of men who were dying in that war were dying, uh, were, were men of poor and minority backgrounds. There is this connection between war disease and injustice and inequities and racism that cannot be denied in my point oh. of view. It was interesting. I mean, further anything recedes in history, you look at the uh, more and more of the detail disappear. But the draft at the time had certain rules. And every year, not every year, but almost every year, the rules changed. And at a certain point, college deferments were eliminated for exactly that reason, that, that, that uh, college deferments were an easier way for richer people to stay out of uh, being drafted. So it was dropped. That was one of the few changes that were that were made to try to make it a little bit fair um, on that issue. And I think that that was one of the outcomes of the civil rights demonstrations. You mentioned in your book a very poignant aside um, that you wonder at the end of your, uh, at the end of the, your book you're writing, uh, that you wonder whether the civil rights and the anti-war movements accomplished anything. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Because we have a lot of people that are activists about a lot of things and you've, you've, you certainly have been, and, and you've made it very clear your approach to it with empathy. But how do you feel? Because I, th I think there are things that were accomplished, but they're certainly not what we imagine could possibly happen. So it's not that much. So what, do you, what, what was on your mind when you put that in the book at the end? You just, it was an aside, but I thought it was very deeply felt. Um. You know, I found social change to be impermanent, you know, not to be permanent. Mm -hmm. That rights won could be rights lost. Whether it's voting rights or the right to choose what to do with your body. Mm -hmm. A lot of different rights weren't permanent. Just because we struggled and died and went to prison for them doesn't mean that they're going to be there. Mm -hmm. all the time, that the forces against equality, against justice, against peace, haven't changed. They are there. Unfortunately, they are <clears throat> powerful. Mm -hmm. They are wealthy. They run the government and governments around the world. So you cannot think that something you lived and struggled for is permanent. If you don't continue and struggle for it, it won't stay there, particularly what we've seen with these last four years, what could be rolled back, what nightmare we could be living. Who would think mm -hmm. 
that we would be in the nightmare we are today at the most difficult time with this pandemic. Mm -hmm. The government completely oblivious and deceitful. And everything that was built during the Obama years could be undone. Mm -hmm. And that tells me this, that you have to struggle. You have to keep up the struggle. You can't just assume that the civil rights movement is a given, mm -hmm. that your voting rights is a given. You have to be willing to understand that this is a permanent struggle against this and, and that the progress made could be undone. That's what I meant by that Yeah. Uh, when I look back. And I think that's the lesson that I've learned. And we have just a couple of minutes left. I would like to talk about one other issue that's related on a smaller scale because uh, most people don't think that they can do too much on this large scale for, for, for good reasons. I mean, you were an actor on that stage and then had to, had to back off. But on a small scale, it's true about families. That families, we get in difficulties with our families. And, and I thought your story was also good for that. Uh, in the end in spite of your very difficult relationship with both your parents and your one sister, um, they were the ones you turned to to make their final decision after having gotten advice from Stan and from Billy and other characters that, that are all very entertaining characters in your, in your uh, book. Um, and they, that even with their advice and the, and the uh, Jewish um, uh, pastor uh, down in, in L.A., uh, everybody kind of gave you pretty much the same advice. You turned back to your family, and difficult as it was, they did come through for you at the, when you when you turn yourself in, and I, I like to tell that story because part of it is that even if they don't accept you totally the way you are, you're still family, and you had to accept them the way they're still the same, even though you hadn't seen them in twenty some years. It's a, a fascinating story. Yeah, I had to grow up. You know, I mm -hmm. I had to grow up. I I I wanted my parents to accept me as a gay woman. Mm -hmm. except my gender identity and all of that, wanted to accept my activism, and that was not going to happen. Mm -hmm. What they did accept was, in the end, after separation of what, well over 20 years, close to 25 years. They didn't even know whether you were alive, right? They didn't even know I was alive. Yeah. Um, they, had to, they, had to ex they had to come to a place different from where they were, mm -hmm. And that I was their daughter. And they had, I think, in their own mind, seen missed opportunities that they could have reached out to me. Mm -hmm. Mainly things like at my trial, you know, coming to my trial mm -hmm. in Chicago in 1970. I had to grow up too. I had to see that they were not going to be my ideal parents. Mm -hmm. However, they were willing to say, you are my daughter. We, we want to be part of helping you. And the key help was I needed a lawyer in Chicago. And despite our fundamental differences, we were able to grow up together, if you will, to mm -hmm. see that at this critical moment in time, I needed their help again. Mm -hmm. And I was willing to reach out to them again and say, I need your help. Mm -hmm and find a way to put aside all of our other differences to understand that if they're willing to help me, and they stood up because helping a fugitive is a crime, mm -hmm. you know, aiding and abetting a fugitive is not a safe position. Right. They were willing to take that step because I made the first step. Mm -hmm. The first step was contacting my mother, going to see her, literally knocking on her door, trying to see what was on the other side of that door, mm. putting aside for once my childish view of them and look at them for what they are now, almost 20, over 20 years later, and have some empathy for them. Mm -hmm. And they were willing to have empathy for me in my situation. And I think that's where we found the common ground with each other. Mm -hmm. At the moment I needed it the most, because I wasn't sure whether I was going to return. But without their help, I couldn't have. So I think if that's the message about broken families, yeah. about having to grow up on both sides, 
and ultimately seeing the connection between them. But I took a risk by contacting them because they could have called the FBI. Mm -hmm. And they took a risk by helping me. There are a lot of people in this situation. You were in your early 40s when you did this. There are a lot of people in this situation who have, have not really been in contact with their family, not as extreme as yours. Um, and I think that that's a, a really valuable, deep part of your story is how you took the risk. You, you can expect that they're not going to take the risk, you know, the other members of your family. But if you want to get in contact with your family again, if you take some risk, they, it, the response is usually, it's, it's not 100% sure, that's for sure. But the response is usually better than you expected. Um, it was an amazing story about, about you, you know, knocking on your mother's door and having her realize it's you. Um, not knowing whether you were still alive, and and you didn't you didn't know for a long time that your parents had been divorced for twenty years, etc. And uh, but I also thought it was moving that you found out that your mother had gone around trying to find uh, find you. They went to your college graduation, for example, went to other things that you never never knew that she did, um, and obviously gave you more trust that she had your interests at, at stake. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a fantastic book, Emily, and. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I mean, I know your original name is Linda Quint, and then you, you uh, took a, 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 the birth certificate was Alexa E. Freeman, then you went with Emily, and, and it was your lawyer that gave you your, your, your uh, final name, which I thought was really quite interesting. <laughs> the lawyer in Chicago, which did, who did a great job for you. you know, all the characters in, in, in Chicago seemed to be very interested uh, to, to meet you, and I remember the story when it came out, when you had turned yourself in, in the papers, because Chicago news always got to me. So um, thanks a lot for sharing your life. Anybody from our generation uh, will find it covers so many issues that we all went through. And it also, to me, um, gives a lot of insight to people who are dealing with the new version of all the same old issues, as you say. The new version of all the same old issues isn't as... It, it, to every generation, it doesn't seem as bad as the one they went through, but every generation is, is always the bad situation. And uh, as far as the current state of the government, I think that probably they, they might have an edge over Richard Nixon even. <laughs> although, although I hate to say that about anybody. <laughs> so thank you very much, Emily. And uh, you, you can purchase her book uh, online, right? Um, yes. It's available everywhere. And thank you very much. And thank you for joining us again. So ends another event of the Commonwealth Club in its 118th year of enlightened discussion. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.